Hi there. My name is Mireya Perez, and I aspire to create a platform where language service providers can tell their stories and where listeners can find inspiration and creativity. This podcast is dedicated to you, the language professional that desires to listen to the journeys of others in order to create their own path and personal branding. Here, I'll feature an array of guests from all fields of interpretation, as well as translation, willing to share their stories with you. Join me as we embark on professional and personal development by telling our stories. This is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. In today's episode of Brand the Interpreter podcast, we have Vanessa Phillips-Costa of Cambridge Health Alliance. Vanessa Phillips-Costa is Manager of Multicultural Affairs and Patient Services. She is a project lead for CHA's Video Interpreting Initiative, honored with the 2014 Amerinet Healthcare Achievement Award for technological advances that have enhanced CHA's ability to care for a diverse patient population. She is the 2019 Tony Windsor Award recipient for the professionalization of medical interpreting and her language access improvement work at CHA. She has co-authored articles on strategies to improve care for LEP patients, published in the AA. Journal of Ethics in 2017 and in the Joint Commission Journal on Quality and Patient Safety in 2019. Prior to her current position, Vanessa was director of the Cross-Cultural Communication Institute at CCCS, Inc., where she specialized in curriculum development for interpreter and provider training and lectured nationally on topics related to international communication and language access. She is a core certification healthcare interpreter credentialed by the Certification Commission for Healthcare Interpreters and, in case you're not yet impressed, she was the former secretary of the International Medical Interpreters Association and the current Secretary of the Forum on the Coordination of Interpreter Services. As you'll soon hear in today's episode, all of this preparation has paved the way to assist Vanessa in the creation of CHA's remote video interpreting services with staff interpreters due to the current COVID pandemic. Stay tuned and hear more about language access in the times of COVID-19. So without further ado, here's Vanessa's story. Vanessa, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'd like to go ahead and get started and get into what your story is. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind, Vanessa, tell us what your story is. <laughs> sure. So I, I am Portuguese-American, uh, born to a Portuguese dad and a very American mom. Uh, grew up in Massachusetts, uh, in the Peabody, Massachusetts area, in an Azorian community. Um, my mom is a fearless person, and so very early on, even before I was born, uh, she began to learn Portuguese on her own. Uh, she calls it learning in self-defense to understand all the things that my grandmother would say about her. <laughs> <laughs> now, by the time I came along, they were already fast friends, uh, but my mom made it a point uh, to teach me everything that she was learning. 
so we spoke a mix of English and Portuguese at home. And my earliest memories are our kitchen and really the whole house being plastered over with uh, note cards. I don't think we had stickies back in the day, but note cards where she would write English and Portuguese words for household objects. So you'd look around the kitchen and see uh, refrigerator, geladeira, uh, door, porta. And so I learned to read in both languages simultaneously. Uh, my dad is an educator. Uh, interestingly, he, he is of Portuguese descent, but he lived in Spain and his area um, is, is Spanish. He teaches Spanish um, and also bilingual education. Uh, and so he was all about learning to read and write in, in various different languages early on. And he would um, establish, for example, Portuguese Wednesdays, where we only spoke in Portuguese. And when I was little, it was fun. When I was a teenager, it drove me nuts. Uh, but I think it really did uh, prepare me uh, for, for a bilingual life some early on preparation. I, I love the whole uh, note cards around the house. That's, that's amazing. I think I'll, I'll try that for my little guy. Yeah, I, I think the technology is better now. We have sticky notes and <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I think she used scotch tape and, and, um, and note cards, but it was very effective. Uh, yes. And it, it forced me to to be open to multiculturalism, multilingualism. And it made me think as a young person, of course, most young people don't know what they want to be. And, you know, I'm 39. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> but I knew I was going to involve language. Whatever I was going to do, it was going to involve language. And it was going to involve community as well. Uh, so around the time that I graduated from high school, uh, we learned that Bentley College in Massachusetts uh, was going to offer a program. It was the first medical interpreter training program at the college level to include Portuguese. Uh, this was 1998. Uh, prior to that time, all college level programs where they existed, existed in Spanish only. Uh, and so I applied. Uh, it was a rigorous screening process. Uh, they did shadowing, they did um, uh, dual tasking. Uh, there was a, a language proficiency element uh, and I passed the screenings, but was rejected from the program because I was still 17 years old. Oh, wow. And um, I, I fought with the dean to get in. Uh, and he said, well, you're too young to do interpreting. And I said, well, you know, the program is a year and a half. <laughs> Be, being young is something that time will definitely cure. Uh, and he let me into the program uh, with the understanding that I would not actually do any interpreting until I was deemed qualified to do so. Uh, so I had the opportunity to choose interpreting as a first career. Uh, to get a college-level preparation for medical and legal interpreting. I never did much legal after that. I did a few depositions. They made me cry, and I decided not to do any more. Uh, and so I focused my career on medical interpretation. Vanessa, 1998 out in Massachusetts for a college program, I mean, that seems like they were well ahead of times. Um, do you happen to know the backstory on what led to this college offering the program? Well, I don't know all of the factors um, that were involved in the college offering the program, but I can tell you that Massachusetts was and continues to be a bit ahead of its time in terms of medical interpreting. Uh, Boston is where the Massachusetts Medical Interpreters Association was founded. Um, that later became the International Medical Interpreters Association. And a lot of folks in this area, and of course we're biased because we're from here, but we like to think of Massachusetts as the birthplace of medical interpreting in the United States. 
Uh, one of my professors in the Bentley College program, Zarita Araujulain, uh, also started uh, the interpreter service program where I work currently, Cambridge Health Alliance, uh, right outside of Boston in 1979. Uh, and I hope someday you can interview her. She's a fantastic person. At the time, she was working as a social worker at Cambridge City Hospital. And she realized that she had Portuguese speakers and Spanish speakers and no one to help facilitate communication. And she ended up going to City Hall with two dictionaries in hand, one Portuguese and one Spanish, to make a case to the city council that this is not the same language <laughs> and that they should give her a budget to start an interpreter program. Uh, and this was before there were training programs, but she got a budget to hire medical interpreters, and then she had to figure out how to train them. Uh, and 1979 was a big year for, for Boston. Um, Boston Medical Center, Mass General, Beth Israel, and Cambridge Health Alliance all started their language programs in the same year. So we yes. all just celebrated a 40th anniversary as, yeah. as language access programs. Definitely sounds like an interesting story that I would love to be able to share on this platform. We'll uh, have to get an, a hold of her and uh, be able to talk to her further about that. Now, tell us when you went to um, your program in the, the university, what was that like for you sitting probably one of the youngest students in that classroom? What do you remember most about this program? Do you recall? I do. There are two things I remember. One is that um, I was the youngest student by far, uh, and I was also one of just two non-immigrants. Uh, I, I was born in the United States. Only two of us in this class were born in the United States. And it was very interesting. It's something I enjoy today. Uh, this, this camaraderie and this network of Portuguese speakers, some of whom are heritage speakers like myself. Others are immigrants from different parts of the Portuguese-speaking world. I remember that we had Brazilian, uh, Azorian, European, and Cape Verdean students all in the same group. Uh, and it was just a wonderful learning experience for me. And it was my first opportunity because I was so young and I had never been sick or spent much time in hospitals. I ended up learning a lot of the English language of medicine uh, and a better understanding of body systems and illnesses um, than I would have otherwise had I not attended this program. I also learned a lot about my heritage, Portuguese. Uh, there were words that I thought were words because I had heard them said my whole life, uh, only to find out that they're not actually in a dictionary and they are Anglicisms. Um, so for example, growing up in an Azorian Portuguese community, uh, I would hear the word when somebody died, um, they would go to the Anateca. And I always thought that Anateca was a word for funeral home. It turns out that's, a, that's a, an Anglicism for undertaker. <laughs> and so I, 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 it really was eye-opening, and I, I began to look more at dictionaries, to read more in Portuguese, to read uh, Veja, which is uh, a magazine out of Brazil, uh, to, to not just rely on things I had learned in my community, uh, but to look at, you know, how is Portuguese being used today in the places where my family and my neighbors are from? because even they don't know. I think something happens when you immigrate that places freeze in time in your mind, uh, but they're never really frozen. The societies continue to change and adapt. And sometimes immigrants don't keep pace with the changes and adaptations that are happening in their home countries uh, because they're no longer living there. Uh, and so new words are added new concepts are added, technology is introduced, and that changes the language. And so it really instilled in me the importance of looking to other countries for a source of truth 
for language utilization without discounting how language is used by immigrants, particularly those who have been in a community for a long time. Yes, absolutely. Now take us into what happens once you're done with the program. Where do you begin and uh, how does your work in the interpreting field start? So after I finished the program and I got my dual certificates, uh, I still wasn't quite sure what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I took a gap year and went to Mozambique. And Mozambique is part of the Lusophone or the Portuguese-speaking diaspora. When I came back from Mozambique, I got in touch with my old professor, Zarita, uh, and she had set up by this time, um, she was no longer working in social work. She had established cross-cultural communication systems incorporated in Massachusetts, and she hired me as a freelance medical and community interpreter. And that's how I got my first interpreting jobs. Um, at the time, I didn't have it my, my own car. Uh, I did live on a bus route, so I could only accept assignments along that route. For about a year, I accepted assignments. Uh, most of them were at Mass Ioneer, and so I found that I was very good about talking, you know, eyes and ears, but I didn't know much about the rest of the body. <laughs> and I think that interpreting interpreter skills are very much like a muscle. When you don't use it, it gets flabby uh, and, and then it can fail you. And so to, to, to exercise your interpreter skills, you have to be interpreting regularly, often. And in this case, I, I needed to have more exposure to other, to, beyond eyes and ears, to, to other specialties uh, to become stronger as an interpreter. Did you need to go so, back to school for that or was so it... Say that again, you bought a car? I, I bought a car. <laughs> and having my own transportation allowed me to accept different kinds of assignments and to build up my interpreter skills that way. <laughs> Do mm -hmm. you recall a moment in your career when you solidified your decision to getting into this field? I, I fell in love with interpreting uh, and I tried to accept as many different kinds of assignments as possible. I tried to meet as many Portuguese interpreters as possible. And I began to apply. Um, in institutions where I thought there might be an opportunity at full-time employment. Uh, in the early 2000s, there weren't many opportunities for Portuguese interpreters. Um, most hospitals were employing for Spanish only, uh, and they weren't really building their programs in other languages. Uh, Cambridge Health Alliance was an exception, and I, this is where I work today. Uh, at the time, I did apply, and I asked, you know, how can I become a full-time Portuguese interpreter? And one of the managers at the time, she said, look, honey, you have to kill somebody because nobody leaves these jobs. <laughs> So and true. so I began to look for, for other opportunities for full-time employment within the field. Um, one of those opportunities was with Cross-Cultural. They had a need for a translation service coordinator. Uh, and I had never coordinated translations in other languages, but I was willing to learn. Uh, their translation service coordinator was on her way out. She was uh, relocating to a different state, and she was able to give me some foundational training. Uh, but really, in, in the early 2000s, if you were entering this field, you were learning a lot on your own. Uh, today, there, there, there's so much more support uh, for coordinators of language access and for interpreters themselves and in more languages. Which brings me to our following question. Bring us to present day. Talk to us about Cambridge and your current role. Share sure. with us what you currently specialize in, Vanessa. Yeah. So currently I'm a generalist. I, I am the Director of Multicultural Affairs and Patient Services. It's an umbrella department that oversees several service lines at CHA. 
So within our department, we oversee language access, both oral interpretation and written translation. We also do cultural and linguistic education for providers and other clinicians and support staffs, uh, including new employee orientation uh, for anyone entering the organization. Uh, we also oversee patient transport, the information desks, and volunteer services. Uh, so it's a very wide scope for the department itself. My favorite parts of my job are the cultural linguistic education, uh, helping providers who onboard to the organization understand that, you know, we are 43% limited English proficient in our patient panel. That means that 43% of all of our patients are receiving care in a non-English language. And that's unparalleled pretty much everywhere in New England. Uh, most Boston hospitals report 30% LEP or less. Uh, we have so many LEP patients because we are a public safety net. And so our mission and vision and values are centered around serving the underserved. Uh, and that might include the uninsured, uh, the undocumented, the limited English proficient, the low income, uh, or folks who check off one or all of those boxes. Um, so it's incredibly rewarding work. Uh, and I am so proud to be in an organization that has invested so heavily in language access systems, but also in the staff interpreter model. Uh, so the department that I oversee, uh, the service line for interpreting includes 100 interpreters, uh, 58 of which are regular staff and the rest are per diem. Uh, and within these 100 interpreters, there, there are 15 languages represented. Um, in our community, there are over 70 languages represented, so we still partner with um, vendors to provide language access by phone and video for languages of lesser diffusion. Uh, but we are heavily invested in the staff interpreter model, hiring from within the community folks who are a cultural and linguistic match uh, and who are trained and skilled as medical interpreters. As an organization, we do primarily um, primary care with integrated behavioral health. We do provide a number of specialty services. Uh, we do have uh, 277 beds, so we have a modest inpatient service. Uh, and we have some of the busiest emergency rooms in, in the area. I cannot even begin to imagine. Now, when you hire someone, is there an onboarding system uh, that Cambridge has developed or uh, how does that work internally? Sure, sure. So when we hire a staff interpreter, whether it's per diem, part-time, or full-time, we are usually hiring someone with some experience. Um, as you know, most interpreters get their start as freelancers uh, or per diem, and then they may work their way into a regular staff position. Uh, so we look for folks with experience. Uh, but more than that, we look for folks with a solid skill set. So we, we do prioritize um, the hiring of interpreters who have national certification. Of course, national certification is only available in a handful of languages. Uh, so we do interpreter skills assessment through third-party vendors uh, for all of the languages where national certification is, is, is not available. Uh, so we're looking for a combination of some experience a high skill level that is demonstrated through certification or testing, and then we're looking for flexibility. Uh, CHA was the first hospital system in New England to establish an in-house call center. This was in 2007, 2008, uh, where we realized that, you know, we provide face-to-face -face interpreting. We have since the late 70s, but a lot of interpreting was happening over the phone. And even though we had worked with the national vendors that everyone else works with, providers in general had a strong preference to work with the CHA interpreter. 
And it's not that vendor interpreters aren't qualified. We know they are. There are quality assurances written into our contracts. Many of them have the same base preparation that hospital interpreters have. But there's a value, Mireya, in belonging. Belonging to a community, belonging to an institution allows you to understand the barriers of the community and help patients navigate the institution in a way that a vendor simply cannot do. Uh, so an example of this is when a patient calls into our organization and they speak another language uh, and an interpreter is, is, is available on, on the line because we do have an on-demand system for accessing CHA interpreters. And the patient says, you know, I need to establish care. I don't have a doctor. Um, the interpreter can facilitate that connection with the Doctor Finder program to match them to a physician. Uh, and then the Doctor Finder program says, you know, we need to connect you to central registration so you can do the intake. And the interpreter stays on the line for continuity of language access and assists with that call. And then central registration says, well, uh, your insurance is not valid or you don't have insurance. We're going to connect you to financial assistance so they can help you process an application for Mass Health or Health Connector. And the interpreter is still on the line and is helping with that call. And so, you know, 90 minutes later and four calls with different frontline staff and different departments, we now have a patient who's connected to care, who has an insurance application submitted, uh, and who already has a scheduled appointment. So those are the types of navigational assistance that a staff interpreter can provide. Uh, when we looked at, you know, half of all calls are happening in person with our staff, half are happening with vendors, but providers are not thrilled about the experience. How can we provide the immediacy of phone interpreting? Because in 2008, video wasn't an option, um, but do it with our staff. And so we called uh, for volunteers within our per diem and regular staff to sit down in a pilot program and take phone calls as the first routing for any phone interpreting that was gonna happen in the organization. And what we found is that providers loved this because they were getting a familiar voice on the line and someone that knew them and knew the patients in some cases and also knew the organization. And from there it grew. The more we staffed our in-house call centers, the more providers began to use phone interpreting. And in 2012, we were able to introduce video and that changed everything for CHA. Give us a little bit more details. What did that look like for you as an organization when you say that you brought this in-house and um, it was uh, the phone interpretation? What did that look like internally? So it looked like setting interpreters up in cubicles uh, in a you know semi-private shared space. Uh, giving them phones and headsets uh, and working with telecom to make them the first routing on an automated call distribution system. So within our organization, there's one number for language access. Anyone in the organization can dial it. And we set it up so that if it didn't connect to our staff within 60 seconds, then it would route out to a partner or vendor. Um, as more interpreters sat down at these workstations and took more calls in-house, providers began to report improved satisfaction, higher satisfaction with phone interpreting. And we realized this is much less about the modality. It's about who's driving it. Uh, who is the person behind the phone or at the other end of the line? That made all the difference for most of our providers. And these were, again, primary care providers um, calling in from 12 different clinics uh, and specialty providers that were hospital-based. Our EDs did not like phone interpreting. The EDs continued to insist on face-to-face -face, uh, until we were able to give them a video option in 2012. Now talk to us about this video option. How did that change the dynamic? Sure. So 
as a public safety net, we've never had much money. Um, sitting interpreters down in the audio call center was a way to control both quality and cost. Uh, the cost of introducing video when it first became available in the hospital setting was very, very high through vendors. And we really couldn't afford to pay that much per minute uh, to offer video interpreting. So we started to look for ways to, to equip our in-house established call center uh, for video. And uh, one of the ways that we found, the best way we found was to join the Healthcare Interpreter Network, which is a collaboration of hospitals nationwide that share interpreter resources. Uh, joining HCIN enabled us to, to equip our interpreters with video phones instead of regular phones uh, so that they could support video and audio calls throughout their shifts. Uh, we had a champion in the emergency room, uh, Dr. Asad Saya, at the time was our chief of emergency medicine. Uh, today he's our CEO of the institution. Uh, but he was simultaneously working on a project to reduce the arrival to triage time in his EDs, and we have three EDs, uh, to reduce it to five minutes or less. And that was unprecedented work nationwide. Uh, but he was struggling with it because he was able to do that for English, but not for other languages. Uh, because the providers would not use phone and they insisted on in-person, well, for the languages that we staffed every day in the hospital, there might be a wait of 10 or 15 minutes before the next interpreter became available. And in a language of lesser diffusion, the wait could be much longer. Uh, he was an early adopter of video. He saw its potential. Uh, and we rolled out our first iPads for video interpreting in the three EDs. Immediately, the ED utilization went from 100% face-to-face to 80% remote, like immediately, uh, because providers recognize that video interpreting is a virtual face-to-face -face experience. All of the visual cues are there for the patient and for the interpreter, uh, and the iPad actually took up a little bit less space than the physical interpreter in a small ED triage area. And Dr. Sayo was able to achieve his goal of a five minute or less arrival to triage across all languages and not just English. So it was an incredible equalizer for our patients. Um, no one had to wait to be triaged. Uh, and the ED continues to use face-to-face -face interpreting uh, for some patients and situations, uh, but video has become the primary mode uh, in our three emergency rooms uh, and patients and providers rate it highly. Help our listeners visualize what this may look like because the last time that our HR attempted to do a iPad or a video interview, the poor HR tech stood there holding the iPad for at least an hour to the point where he had dead arms by the time we were done interviewing the candidate. So is oh, that no. what that looked like? <laughs> No, no, you have to be hands-free, uh, and it has to be wireless. Uh, so what we have, and I can show this to you on video. I know your listeners won't hear it, but maybe we can include a photo. Uh, we have a wireless stand uh, for the iPads. It is about four feet tall. It is adjustable. Um, the wheels on it look a little bit like rollerblade wheels. It's very light and very easy to move. Um, and the stand was actually designed by Fernando Gargano, who for 11 years was the co-manager of our department. Uh, and it fits an iPad. So the provider experience is you wheel this very compact, very lightweight cart into the room. You don't have to plug it in. Uh, and you simply, with one or two touches, select on the screen the language that you want. 
And within 90 seconds, an interpreter comes on screen, usually a CHA interpreter. Uh, if not a CHA interpreter, then an interpreter from one of the partner hospitals in the healthcare interpreter network. There are some situations where no video interpreter is available. And so we've programmed uh, the iPads to roll over to a phone call uh, so that if no video interpreter is available within the network, providers don't have to hang up and look for another device to get a phone interpreter. Yeah, you have to make it easy or providers won't do it. Right. Um, so I know a lot of institutions, they have very complex systems, um, heavy or unwieldy equipment, um, handheld equipment, and providers do need to be hands-free. Uh, they don't want to have to plug anything in. They don't want to have to enter a passcode or a PIN. It should be simple. It should be one or two touches. It should be available at all points of care. Uh, and that's, that's how you make language access happen for your patients. Absolutely. And for our listeners that are trying to uh, envision this, she, she did wheel in what looks like for some of us that have uh, been in a hospital setting or even a clinic setting, what a lot of the techs now roll in with, right? It could be a laptop that they're de- doing their input in, or uh, it's basically sitting on something similar, correct? Mm-hmm. And the iPad has worked really well in our community because we have a small deaf and hard of hearing population. Uh, We have less than 100 patients in our system that sign American Sign Language, but we have 23,000 Portuguese-speaking patients. So you look at a small group, then you look at a large group. For spoken language, the size of an iPad is appropriate for most patients in most settings. Uh, For American Sign Language, you might want a larger device with a larger screen, uh, particularly for patients who are also visually impaired. Uh, And so there's some beautiful machines that are compatible with the Cisco network that we're on. Uh, For example, the DX70 or the DX90 uh, that are um, large screen and more accessible for for patients who sign and who are visually impaired. And we have a few of those, uh, but mostly we have iPads um, at all points of care. Vanessa, during these times, there has been just an enormous amount of stories of how hospitals have needed to adapt. And and I should clarify, actually, not just hospitals, but very many organizations and individuals themselves um, with our current worldwide situation. The story that brought me to you, Vanessa, was your story about how you've helped CHA's interpreters uh, reposition themselves from some internal to remote interpreting now. And you've just walked us through how CHA was able to adopt the technology use in-house. Now talk to us a little bit about how your world and the world of your interpreters have changed within these last few months and how you've been able to make such a quick and it seems like smooth transition into remote. Now, maybe on our end, it looks smooth, but talk to us about what that looked like for you. Sure, sure. So a month ago in early March, we didn't have any COVID patients. No one was really talking about COVID, you know, outside of, you know, this is something that's happening in Wuhan. Um, It wasn't anything that anyone anticipated would be happening in Massachusetts. So a month ago, we had a 22-person call center in an off-campus location. And then at our three hospital campuses, we had a team of interpreters at each campus who prioritized face-to-face, but would also sit at video workstations in between assignments to make the most of their time and to support the call center. COVID has changed everything. Um, When we first started to see COVID cases, 
um, when our local governments began to suggest stay at home, work from home, uh, our organization began to look at who within the organization could potentially work from home without losing their productivity. Who has the tools to make this work from a home office? And one of the first groups that came to mind was the call center. We have 22 interpreters who are in an off-campus location already, but they're all together. Uh, and we don't want them to fall ill, um, even through community transmission. If someone brings COVID into a call center, well, then you could lose your whole call center. We care about interpreters as individuals, and we also need to keep them healthy to, to be able to support patient care throughout the pandemic. So that was one of the first groups uh, where we decided, okay, we're going to send the call center interpreters home, and we're going to send them home with their Cisco video phones that they have on their desks. Uh, and we didn't want to create too many obstacles. We wanted to move quickly. A lot of interpreters don't have a home office that is an actual office. Uh, but we said, if you have any room in your home that is private, that is quiet, and if you have a broadband internet connection, we're going to send you home. Uh, so what we did was get a list of folks who had a private, quiet space. And for some people, that's an attic. For others, it's a basement. Some actually did have a home office. Some are using a bedroom, uh, but they, they've put their family members out of it for the duration of their shift. Uh, so anyone with a private quiet space and broadband internet, we purchased a VPN or a, a uh, VPN is virtual private network license so that through connecting their video phone directly to their router through the ethernet, they're able to jump on through the VPN bridge onto the secure private network to do video interpreting and phone interpreting. That's amazing. And uh, what has been the feedback with that uh, as far as your interpreters and uh, even internal staff? Have they been able to notice a difference? So the providers heard a rumor uh, that we were sending interpreters home and I got a flurry of emails. You can't send interpreters home. We absolutely need them. And <laughs> we assured them we're sending them home to work. We're sending them home <laughs> with all the equipment that they have <laughs> uh, and they will continue to support you in all of your needs. Um, and we have found that by, you know, we started with the call center and then we looked at the hospital-based interpreters and we said, okay, we want to maintain a minimum staffing of one interpreter per language for the top three languages, which are Portuguese, Spanish, and Haitian Creole. Uh, and we may not need more than one interpreter per language since face-to-face -face interpreting is being restricted right now um, due to the infection, um, the chance of the high risk of infection. Uh, and so we asked for volunteers who would like to stay on campus and who would rather go home. And by the end of three days, we had 46 interpreters signed up to go home and beginning to transition home and 12 interpreters that signed on to stay uh, to provide that core staffing on the hospital campuses throughout the pandemic. Uh, so many other things were changing for our providers at the same time. Uh, our primary care sites began to close uh, for office visits. They very quickly mobilized for telehealth. Um, and the telehealth experience has been very interesting. Um, previously, before COVID, folks thought that telehealth would be impersonal. But what we're finding during COVID is that you've got doctors that are working from home, patients that are in their homes, and interpreters that are in their homes. And it's actually disturbingly intimate. <laughs> <laughs> you're getting a glimpse through a video portal of how people live, how the doctors live, how the interpreters live and work, and how the patients live. Um, patients are reporting high satisfaction with the telehealth visits. 
uh, interpreters are confirming this and saying that patients actually have more quality time with the clinician now than they ever did coming into the clinic. Mm -hmm. So you have to think about your clinic experience where as a patient, it takes you 45 minutes to get to the health center. Um, you arrive to a crowded waiting room and you wait another 45 minutes and then you're seen, but you're seen by an MA or you're seen by a nurse and you really don't get much time with the physician or the PA or the nurse practitioner in general. Uh, and this is completely different. All of the people in the middle have disappeared and it's just you and your primary care provider or nurse practitioner, uh, PA and the interpreter. And you have more time uh, and all of the attention is on you. Uh, and patients are starting to like telehealth, those that can participate in it. I think it's just uh, such an inspiration to be able to see how quickly some organizations such as yours, Vanessa, has been able to facilitate the language access to uh, to patients, to LEP families and individuals. Um, it's just, uh, it's reassuring to know that a lot of other organizations regardless of the size, can also follow some of these steps and be able to adapt some of these strategies so that they too are able to offer language access. So the fact that you're sharing all the different techniques and all your different strategies, I, I find um, just very inspirational. And thank you for sharing that. Uh, it's very interesting. It's been a big, a big experiment, um, one that we didn't plan, um, but one that was necessitated by, by the COVID response. But, you know, Pre-COVID, a month ago, when we had the hospital interpreters prioritizing face-to-face -face, uh, and supporting the call center when they could, we were able to do between 700 and 800 calls in-house a day. Uh, and we're now at about 1,300 a day, which shows you the maximum potential of your team when everyone is sitting down at a video workstation. Now, we know this is not sustainable. We know that COVID will pass. Uh, and we know that many things will return to a semblance of what they were before. Uh, there are many situations that will require face-to-face -face moving forward, and we are going to return everyone uh, to their original work locations. Uh, but it's been very interesting. We had always wondered what would be the potential of our team if everyone were sat down, and now we know that we can help many, many more patients in-house. Yeah, and I think for very many of us that at uh, one point desired to be able to uh, do our jobs from home, I think after about three days, uh, we figured out that this is no longer the case. <laughs> We'd rather yeah. go back and be outside. <laughs> so that, that's a really good point. So what is it like from the interpreter perspective? Um, I'm, I'm conducting three huddles a day uh, with the interpreters in their natural teams, so we have a huddle for Cambridge and Somerville hospital interpreters, one for Everett hospital interpreters, and one for the call center group. Uh, and these huddles are conducted via Google Meet. Um, for the hospital-based teams, interpreters who are on campus are joining the huddle, as well as interpreters that are working from home. Uh, and I think this has been important to maintaining solidarity and sense of support, uh, particularly because so many of the encounters now are COVID-related. Uh, we, we serve the community of Chelsea, Massachusetts, which has recently been in the Boston Globe uh, as one of the hardest impacted or the hardest hit communities in Massachusetts. We're seeing a disproportionate number of Latino and Spanish speaking and Portuguese speaking Brazilian patients uh, from Chelsea and the surrounding communities with a positive COVID diagnosis. 
So our interpreters who, you know, previously were doing primary care and behavioral health and some specialties, and we didn't have very many critically ill patients. Uh, now on a daily basis, they have, you know, suspected COVID, presumptive COVID, confirmed COVID, critically ill COVID. And some of the interpreters say that in the past three weeks, they've interpreted more critical cases than they had in the previous year. Because that just wasn't a big part of what we did right. as a community health organization. Uh, so their work has changed. And I think that for them, these daily huddles are a lifeline where they get to see and hear each other, although they're not together in the same location. Uh, they get to share their experiences and challenges, uh, ask questions about things that are changing, like hours of operation and consolidation of programs and, and um, who can be seen in person and so many things that are changing from day to day. Um, and they also encourage each other and share the positive experience as well. Uh, some of our first COVID patients are now much better. Uh, and at the same hey. time, yes, yes. Some are being discharged. They're being discharged to step down facilities or discharged to home. Um, and that's incredibly encouraging. And so it's nice to start getting those stories as well as the new cases that are coming in. And oh, the interpreters absolutely. really relish the time. They stop what they're doing and they join this huddle. And I had scheduled them as 30-minute huddles and they always end up being 45. Because <laughs> there's just so much to share. I love that you. Uh, I love that you call them huddles. It's not, you know, it's not a, a team meeting. It's not anything like that. It simply is, uh, you know. I think something that's a, a little bit more on the personal level, right? And I love that you call them that. And as far as the organization is concerned, for everyone in house, but of course, particularly for your interpreters, what are you recommending with regards to self-care? You know, one of the uh, looks like uh, approaches is uh, your huddles that you're having. Is there anything else you're recommending your interpreters during these difficult times? Mm-hmm. So there's different kinds of self-care. Uh, in, in any time, people that work in an office, people that work in a call center or that work from home on video or phone, they need to remain physically active. So there's the self-care of taking your breaks, of getting up and taking a walk, of hydrating, of stretching. Uh, There are interpreters who, even in the call center, would do yoga. Uh, During their breaks, they would work out in the gym. There was a gym in the building. (laughs) Now they're trying to figure out how to do this from home. So there's the physical self-care of exercise, movement, and rest. And then there's the emotional self-care, taking time to regroup between challenges challenging assignments, um, identifying someone you can talk to about things that are disturbing, uh, things that you carry with you that you're not able to put to rest or that are keeping you up at night. Uh, The organization itself and most hospitals do have employee assistance programs where you can tap into a certain number of counseling sessions free of charge and on a confidential basis. But what we're finding is that CHA Wellness is really stepping up for everyone within the organization, offering um, webinars, seminars, videos, uh, live virtual debriefings with psychologists and other trained counselors uh, specific to COVID. Uh, And we're dedicating time for the interpreters who want to participate to participate during their shifts. 
That is such great support. Thank you so much for sharing those uh, tips and see if maybe even uh, some of our listeners can come up with ideas. If that's not something that your organization is perhaps currently doing, be able to suggest some of these great ideas. The physical care is absolutely crucial and I think very important. So just because we're remote now does not mean that we have to sit in front of our computer. And that's more a self uh, reminder to myself. <laughs> they don't have to sit in front of the computer the whole day. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you're, when you're in the, the, the moment and you're interpreting and it's a tense situation or you need to really concentrate, there's an adrenaline that kicks in and you forget that you're thirsty. You forget that you didn't have lunch. You forget that you had to use the bathroom when you answered that call. Everything kind of goes away, but you can't survive in that mode for very long. Uh, so frequent breaks are necessary. Uh, there's a technique called body scanning, getting in touch with your body and how it's feeling and responding to what your body is telling you is really important if you're going to survive long-term uh, in a call center environment. Mm, I like that body scanning. Vanessa, obviously these current moments are challenging for very many people in all kinds of fields and in all kinds of ways, but Thinking back aside from COVID, what would you say has been your biggest challenge during your career? And share with us how you overcame it. What did it teach you? I think the, the biggest challenge um, in my career at CHA, which may be in my whole career the biggest challenge, uh, was shepherding this transition from face-to-face to remote. Um, I remember early on when we were rolling out video in the EDs, um, I, I spoke with a doctor who was not the chief, uh, who, who had been doing things a certain way for 30 years within the organization. Uh, and he said to me, I don't understand why we care about interpreter productivity. Uh, at the time, he said, the, the interpreter makes $20 an hour. I make 120 Why don't you care about my time? <laughs> and my answer to him was, we can bill for your time. But interpreter services is a finite resource for which we cannot bill, and therefore we must think very mindfully about how we deploy our interpreters. Um, there was another doc who said, wait a minute, if the interpreter is not physically in the ED, who will bring the blanket for the patient? And my response to him was, well, who brings the blanket for the English-speaking patients? Shouldn't it be the same person? Right. Uh, shouldn't we be attending to the physical needs of all patients across languages in the same way? And what I learned from that is that many providers had utilized the in-person on-site interpreter as a proxy for relationships, where they relied on the interpreter to do all things for the patient that they themselves were not willing to do because it was convenient for the interpreter to do them, because they were afraid of having to establish these relationships with someone who spoke a language other than English. So, you know, this idea of you use video first, and if you really do need us for clinical communication, we will come to you, uh, forced providers of all levels to interact with patients that they, they previously had not really interacted with. They had used the interpreter as a proxy for the relationship. Uh, and so what did I learn from this? I learned that it's very difficult to change culture. <laughs> but that it's possible and one should not give up. Uh, I learned that you need to, to anticipate, first of all, identify who are the stakeholders and where are the factions. So with any change you need to make, you must first believe in it, but you must also anticipate what other beliefs exist within this community. How, do, how are people going to align 
uh, as stakeholders in factions? Uh, what are the political connections that already exist? What is the psychology? If someone is really stuck on an opinion, what is the reason for that? What's behind it? What experiences have they had that have led them to grasp and hold on to that belief so firmly? And how can we gently move them? Honoring the past, but not clinging to the past, honoring the past and, and doing a bit of hand-holding as we move into the future. Mm, yeah. So absolutely. this is a work in progress. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But we've been able to accomplish many things at CHA. Oh, yes, you have, most definitely. What would you say, Vanessa, is one thing that you are most proud of professionally? Well, it's actually something that has nothing to do with me per se. I'm so proud of the interpreters that are on our team, the 100 individuals who who facilitate language access for, for all of our LEP patients and our providers and care teams um, they amaze me every day with their resilience, uh, with their flexibility, with their creative approach, um, not just to language access, but to social determinants of health. They, they amaze me as, as leaders in their respective communities um, and their ability to, to, bring pro- to, to, to bring the community in and also to extend beyond our doors into the community. So, I'm proud of this team and this amazing group of people that I've had the good fortune to know and to work with. Um, and, and, and they help me to, to grow and, and I hope to help them in the same way. We're growing together every day. Absolutely. What exciting new project are you currently working on? Well, <laughs> right before COVID, <laughs> we were look, working on a bilingual provider credentialing program. Uh, So, you know, the Affordable Care Act, Section 1557, is an amazing piece of legislation uh, that stipulates the competencies that interpreters should have in healthcare, but also the competencies that bilingual staff and bilingual clinicians need to demonstrate. And at CHA, we've had a bilingual provider credentialing program for a number of years, but it was voluntary. So what we would say to providers is, if you want to provide direct care in a non-English language, and you don't have a degree in that language, and you didn't get your degree in which that was your language of instruction, then we need you to take a a test. And um, we work with a vendor for a bilingual provider proficiency test. Uh, And depending on how the provider scores, they can be credentialed within the organization to provide direct care in Spanish or Arabic or Haitian Creole or Portuguese. What we realized is that there were a lot of providers who had met the exemption criteria, but would tell us that they don't feel comfortable using their languages. So, for example, a provider from India um, who graduated medical school in India, but the medical school is in English, and they had never had clinical conversations in their native Indian language. Uh, Or a provider who said, you know, I graduated from medical school um, in Haiti, but it's been 30 years uh, since I practiced in Haitian Creole or in French. And so the project we were working on that had just been blessed by the MedExec committee before COVID uh, was to change the policy so that anyone providing direct care would have to go through the same assessment process so that we could get a baseline uh, proficiency level on every clinician that was advertising or providing care in a language other than English. And what this would do is improve um, the standard of care for LEP patients, the ones whose providers are not tapping into interpreter services because they're providing the care directly in the language. 
Um, and so we hope to resume that after COVID uh, and to move forward with this organization-wide push to, to credential or at least assess all of the bilingual providers that had previously met the exemption criteria because of education. That definitely sounds exciting. And hopefully once things uh, go back to semi-normal, <laughs> it'll take a while, right, to go back to normal, normal. CHA can continue to do this. That sounds so exciting. Mm-hmm. Vanessa, Share with us some tips and recommendations uh, for anyone that's is interested in joining the world of managing language access, uh, such as what you do with CHA, or that is interested in transitioning or becoming a part of the uh, medical field for interpreters. Well, I think this is something that our field is grappling with right now. Medical interpreting got a head start. I know you're in the field of educational interpreting, and right now you are involved in a push to establish standards and to create training programs. Medical interpreting has had that for a while now, Uh, but what we don't have is a clear career path um, that helps an interpreter move up. Um, So many organizations don't have, for example, a clear path from interpreter to lead interpreter to trainer or supervisor or manager. Uh, And a lot of folks managing interpreter programs don't know much about interpreting. Uh, And so I think that's something that we need to work on as an industry, as as a field. You know, how can we help interpreters grow as leaders? Um, And that may mean taking someone who is an amazing interpreter away from interpreting. uh, And then what's our succession planning? Right. Or if someone is, there are interpreters for whom interpreting is a vocation, And they don't want to go into the administrative side. Uh, So how can we help them become preceptors and trainers and teachers or provider educators while they're still practicing as interpreters? Uh, So I I think that we need help and we need some kind of national organization around this. I love that. Vanessa, uh, lastly, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? That's a really good question. <laughs> oh, well, you're always welcome to come and visit us at Cambridge Health Alliance. <laughs> Thank uh, you. You're, we're happy to give you a tour. We're very proud to show up the language access program. You're welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn. I like to post what's going on here at home uh, and also articles of interest that somehow relate to language and language access and, and cultural linguistic care. And I am the secretary of the Forum on the Coordination of Interpreter Services, which is a support group for interpreter program administrators. It started in Massachusetts. We've opened it up to all of New England. And pre-COVID, we had in-person meetings every other month where the people who run language access programs in hospitals and clinics in Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York, well, New York State, not New York City, would come together and share challenges and best practices and encouragement. We've moved those meetings virtually now. Um, If you are interested in learning more about FOCUS, you can contact me directly. Uh, And there are FOCUS chapters and spinoffs in other parts of the country, including in the Carolinas. So we're happy to help you get started in terms of connecting on a regular basis uh, with people who who are responsible for language access and healthcare uh, and, and, and providing this mutual support. 
What was the name again, please, Vanessa? Focus or the Forum on the Coordination of Interpreter Services. Sounds fantastic. I'll make sure to put all these all this information on the show notes as well. And before we go, is there any other thing that you would like to mention or say to our listeners, Vanessa? I want to reach out with some words of encouragement for the interpreters adjusting to work from home uh, and for the interpreters that are on the literal front lines of the COVID response, uh, the ones who are clamoring for PPE, um, the ones who have the PPE but are still very nervous about being infected and bringing that home. Uh, you are essential uh, and you are loved. Uh, we're going. We're in this together. Uh, we will survive this together. Together, we can thrive. Um, and I, I, I think that especially during a pandemic, um, the value of the interpreter becomes very, very evident. Uh, we've read articles, for example, in ProPublica and the New York Times about hospital systems that had not invested in language access um, and that really couldn't do much for LEP patients uh, from triage all the way to end of life. That doesn't have to be, and it's interpreters on the front lines and their administrators that can change that narrative in other cities and in other states across the country. It's not too late. Beautifully said. Thank you so very much for your time, Vanessa. I really do appreciate you amidst the chaotic schedule that you currently have saying yes to my invitation, and uh, I wish you well. Thank you so much, and this is an amazing initiative. All the best with the podcast. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. To find out more about Vanessa, you can find her on LinkedIn as Vanessa Phillips Costa. Information on Cambridge Health Alliance can be found on challiance.org. Please do let me know if you're enjoying these episodes. Look for me on social media and send me a shout out. Oh, and hey, in case you've not yet heard, Season 2 of Brand the Interpreter will showcase your story. I'm currently accepting submissions for language services-related stories that have left an impression on you. The stories that are selected will be featured on Season 2 of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. For more information, please visit www.brandtheinterpreter.com forward slash Story Wednesdays. I hope you're all staying safe and that you've somehow adapted to your new working environments. I'm still trying. That's all for today's episode, guys. Thank you so much for joining me. Stay safe. Until next time. Bye-bye.